Let's open our Bibles to the book of the Revelation. Revelation of Jesus Christ. We're in uh, chapter 17. We're going to look at verses 1 through 18. That's the entire chapter. You should either bring a Bible to church or have some kind of a Bible downloaded on your uh, electronic device. It's great to follow along. Uh, one reason you should follow along and read uh, along is that I think the Lord wants to talk to you from the text while I'm talking. In fact, you, you may not even remember what I say because the Lord starts to speak to you directly from the living word. A lot of times people come up to me afterwards and they said, man, when you were talking about Jude this morning, that was so fantastic. And I was like, wow, cool. And I used to be smart, Alec, and say, I didn't talk about Jude, but now I understand that the Holy Spirit did. And so uh, just have that communication with God, follow along. The topic we're going to look at this morning, the mystery global religious system of the Great Tribulation is compared to a harlot riding a scarlet beast. The title of our message, Ride, Harlot, Ride Upon Your Mystery Beast. <laughs> thank you. Thank you over here. That was a, yeah, thank you. All right. <laughs> oh, where, where? Anyway, let's pray. Father, thanks so much for the privilege and blessing of letting us be here. I just can't get this image out of my mind, Lord, of all of us as living stones being fit together in this unique uh, way that will never happen again. And so I pray, Lord, that as the temple of your spirit this morning, we would receive ministry and that we would be ministers of the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Where is Sin City? Well, you probably thought of Las Vegas. I would guess that the majority of people uh, on the West Coast would think of Las Vegas. After all, what stays in Vegas isn't referring to content that is family-oriented. I was surprised to learn that besides Vegas, nine U.S. cities have earned the designation. No less than 34 cities in over 30 countries have been called Sin City. If we limit ourselves to the Bible, probably the overwhelmingly popular choice would be the sinister sister cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. The city that is the mother of harlots and the abominations on the earth is Babylon. If that comes as a surprise, you're in good company. It surprised the Apostle John as well. The angel talking with John says, I will tell you the mystery. In the Bible, a mystery is always the revealing of something previously unknown. Sin City Babylon is called out for committing fornication, mentioned nine times in the Revelation in chapters 14 through 19. Prostitution and human trafficking will be pervasive in Babylon, her fornication is also spiritual, leading mankind to worship idols and to blaspheme God. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, the current ruler of this world solicits you to commit fornication. And number two, the coming ruler of this world enables you to flee fornication. Let's take a look at the current ruler and this subject of fornication in verses one through six. Chapters 17 and 18 of the Revelation require a synopsis before we go verse by verse. For one thing, we don't realize that the angel is describing Babylon until verse 5. For another thing, these two chapters are not in chronological order. Chapter 16 ended with the pouring out of the seventh and final bowl of the wrath of God upon those who dwell on earth. A voice from heaven proclaimed, it is done. 
The next thing to happen chronologically is the second coming of Jesus Christ, but that doesn't happen in the Bible until chapter 19. Chapter 17 and 18 are an interlude to fill you in on the influence of Babylon before it is destroyed. There are two Babylons in these chapters. Chapter 17 reveals Babylon in its mystery form as a global religious system. Chapter 18 describes Babylon in its municipal form as a global political and commercial system embodied in a city, the literal city of Babylon on the river Euphrates. The mystery Babylon religious system has its origins in the 11th chapter of the book of Genesis. Led by a friend of Bugs Bunny, Nimrod, the non-believers began construction at Babel, or Babel if you prefer, of what archaeologists call a ziggurat. It is a tower of successive stories erected to worship heavenly bodies. The Tower of Babel wasn't an attempt to build a stairway to heaven. It was a temple to worship the heavens, and you would have uh, successive levels of worship of the heavens. One commentator remarked, Babylon was the first international political and religious ecumenical movement in the history of man, and one which has never ceased to exist in one form or another. Wall Street, Madison Avenue, Hollywood are all real places. Their names, however, are used as synonyms for finance, advertising, and entertainment. Religious Babylon is like that. It describes all false religions and idolatry throughout history. One more thing, the beast, that is the Antichrist, will make use of religious Babylon in his rise to power, but he will destroy it mid-tribulation when he demands the world worship him. We'll see religious Babylon destroyed here in chapter 17. The city of Babylon is going to exist until the great earthquake we read about in chapter sec, uh, we read about rather in chapter 16 levels all the world's cities just before the second coming of Jesus. The destruction of the city of Babylon will be the subject of chapter 18. And so verse 1, now that we're prepared to understand, he says there then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me saying to me, "Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. God considers the nation of Israel his wife. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah wrote concerning Israel, your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The angel depicts religious Babylon as a harlot. It is the worship of things and uh, objects other than the true God, and so consorting with her is like infidelity in a marriage. It is spiritual fornication. The harlot representing Babylon sits on many waters. Now, we always take words literally unless they are otherwise defined for us. In this case, waters is symbolic, we find, because in verse 15 it says, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And so as we've seen in, uh, throughout our studies in the Revelation, and we're getting towards the end now, uh, things that are hard to understand, if you just give it a, little, a few minutes and read a few verses, the book will define what it's talking about. And so we do th take things literally unless we find that they are being used figuratively. And just because we take everything literally 
doesn't mean the writers can't use metaphor or illustration or hyperbole and things like that. Uh, we'll see something like that in just a moment. But anyway, it, this gives you the idea that Babylon, this mystery religion that has existed in some form or another since the Tower of Babel, it sits over the people of the world as a kind of a leader of it. They're, they're led by this in the first part of the tribulation. Now, in the New Testament, the word translated fornication comes from the Greek word pornea. It includes any sexual activity outside of biblical marriage. Uh, here's the statement's going to get us kicked off of social media. Biblical marriage is a covenant of companionship between one biological male and one biological female in a monogamous heterosexual union to remain in place as long as they live. So when we talk about, we're not even talking about traditional marriage. I don't even, I don't know what that is because different cultures have different traditions. We want to talk about biblical marriage, and my definition there is, is I think, a, a good one. I have to be careful. This is just an aside. Uh, whenever I say monogamous, I want to say monotonous. And, uh, but if this was a marriage retreat, I might say that and see who caught, you know, because you have to make fun of marriage. But uh, anyway, verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The scarlet beast with horns is not the beast who is the Antichrist. The scarlet beast illustrates the world government that the Antichrist will initially be part of and eventually control. From here on, I will try to call the Antichrist the beast while calling the government the scarlet beast to keep them separate. The government's seven heads and ten horns are going to be revealed a little later in this chapter, so be patient. Verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of the abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Scarlet dominates the image. We can't help but associate it with sin. Uh, we're reminded of Isaiah 118, beginning with, though your sins be as scarlet. And then it goes on to say they can be white as snow. Uh, what a blessing it is to know that sin can be forgiven uh, by Jesus Christ. And then as far away as the east is from the west, which is pretty far when you think about it. East keeps going east. That east, west keeps going west. And uh, they never meet. That's why the Bible couldn't say your sins are as far apart as the north and the south because you can, you can get from the North Pole to the South Pole. But the east just keeps going and the west just keeps going. Uh, and, and that's the Lord making your sins white as snow. Um, Babylon is enticing. There she sits, the lady in red, appealing to your lust, ready to have a drink with you. But in her cup is a spiritually filthy roofie. In the New Testament book of James... He writes, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Drawn away and enticed are words that derive from fishing. Most of you have been fishing. I don't really go fishing. I go casting. <laughs> I'm, a I'm a terrible fisherman. Uh, I, I just don't put the time into it. You know, I don't, I don't study fish movement. I don't have a fish finder. I don't know what fish even eat. I'm pretty sure it's not Velveeta cheese after all these years, but... Uh, of course, if you've ever tasted Velveeta cheese, it, you could see where it could grow in the wild. Uh, but anyway, uh, <laughs> these words derive from fishing. And so uh, what is on the end of your fishing line is some kind of a lure. 
something to attract the fish. And in terms of a, a human being, uh, the, the devil has lures for us. We're attracted to them, and then we nibble for a while. I've, I've known over the years in my own life and in the lives of many others that there's a lot of nibbling that goes on. You ever seen a fish come up? I mean, where the water's really clear and you can actually see the fish comes up and he kind of nibbles and nibbles, and then, then all of a sudden he decides, okay, I'm taking that in. And that's what happens with sin. We nibble. And the nibbling, with nibbling, we think, well, we can always quit. We can stop. It's not going to draw me in. And before you know, you're hooked. And um, I know my dad and brothers used to tell me fish feel no pain uh, because it seems like they do. Uh, and, you know, when you're digging that hook out, you know, and stuff, which is another reason I probably shouldn't catch fish because I just, you know, oh, was that a tongue? Uh, anyway, so, uh, but you get the idea. You know, you don't want it. Have you, ever, have you ever had somebody cast and have the lure catch you somewhere in the skin? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. After you murder that person, then you, you're still in a lot of trouble, you know, and stuff because, man, that hurts. And so... Sin uh, is portrayed as that kind of allure. Verse 5, and on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. All I can say is she has a massive forehead. I don't know how you get all that on your forehead, but maybe she had one of those, you know, things that sticks up out of her hairband or something, but... But now we realize we're talking about Babylon. For four verses, we were kind of in the dark. Babylon's a major subject in the Bible. The city is mentioned almost 300 times. The only other city mentioned more than Babylon is Jerusalem. I thought you were going to say Hanford for a minute, but anyway. <laughs> the Bible reveals the mystery that all idolatry and false religions have their origins in ancient Babylon at the Tower of Babel. It was there that mankind first organized a system of worship that was in rebellion against God. Her illegitimate offspring are abominations that rob, steal, and kill, leading their uh, practitioners to perish eternally. There is, we could say, biblical Christianity, and there is Babylon, and that's all there is. That's the demarcation. Everything that's not biblical Christianity is in some way, shape, or form uh, Babylon. So Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Islam, Hinduism, existentialism, humanism, uh, the world's political systems uh, that people trust in, like Marxism, things like that, they are all Babylon. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, and when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. The imagery puts the world's non-Christian religions, godless political systems, philosophies, and psychologies in proper perspective. Following any of them is like giving yourself over to bloodthirsty cannibals. Wow. Hi, have you heard of Scientology? I have. We talked about it in church on Sunday, and you're a bloodthirsty cannibal. Because you're going to ruin my life, and in the end, I'm headed for perdition if I follow you or any of the other world's religions, or any other world's philosophies. And so, I'll tell you what, we're going to get into something right now, that, and you'll see what I'm talking about. This chapter is a no-holds-barred, in-your-face, this-is-what-I'm-going-to-say chapter. You know? I mean, it talks about, there's going to be some more cannibalism coming up <laughs> in a few minutes, and it's pretty bloodthirsty all the way through. Fornication. That's a word you don't hear much. 
It sounds like one of those King James Version words that needed to be updated because nobody understood it. In polite society, we say, for example, that a couple had premarital sex or that they are sleeping together. Premarital sex makes it sound okay because, after all, the couple is planning on getting married. It's just pre-marriage. Sex is great in marriage, and this is just, it's pre-marriage. After all, we're having premarital counseling. And I know it sounds funny, but it's not. Because it's, it's a watered-down version of fornication. Uh, we say people are sleeping together. I think of babies, you know, like in the same crib. Oh, isn't that cute? No, it's not. It's fornication. I found sometimes in my own life that it's better to just use the right words. Because it hits you in the face. So if you're in a counseling session and I ask you, are you guys having sex? Well, we're sorry, we are having premarital sex. I said, so you're fornicating. So you are each a fornicator. Well, you don't have to put it like that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you know what? Don't do it anymore. And that kind of thing. So, you know, call sin by its names. Don't make up, you know, little names for it and stuff. Uh, and we need to do that with all of our sins. And, and just at least, you know, be honest about it before the Lord. We need to return to that and, and see the effect that it will have. Now, the coming ruler of this world enables you to flee fornication. I don't mean to sound sensational, but an argument can be made that we are living in the most fornicatious time in the history of the world. I made that word up. Fornicatious. I love it. Factor in the World Wide Web and the Bible's prediction that in the last days there'll be a great falling away from the faith and you see the dangers we confront. Verse 7 says, The angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. I don't think the angel is being condescending. He knows that John cannot understand what the vision means until he tells him the mystery. The question, why did you marvel, seems like an encouragement that God will show us what we need to see if we will ask him and wait upon him. Uh, and, and so, you know, the angel says, hey, why did you marvel? Why don't you just ask? I'd be happy to tell you about the mystery. Now, I think the trouble we get into is that we do ask God a lot of things, and it doesn't seem like he answers the things we ask. And guess what? It's because we're probably asking the wrong questions. And so, uh, I, you know, the Bible says don't consider it a strange thing when you fall into various trials and temptations, right? Well, you always do. I always do. I mean, that's the first words out of my mouth. Say, oh, Lord, this is strange that you're allowing this in my life. And I start asking, you know, I want to know why and what's the good of it and how long it's going to last. Is this a temporary thing? You know, and that kind of thing. And sometimes the Lord, he, he, he's not interested in answering those questions. He can't really put them in perspective anyway in my finite life. What he's interested in doing so often is revealing himself to me in those situations. Paul the Apostle, thorn in his flesh. Lord, you've got to get this thing out of me. Whatever it is, it's driving me crazy. It hurts. And the Lord said, no, I, I, think he, I think it's good for you, and I'm going to leave it, and my grace is sufficient for you. Oh, and then Paul perked up. He says, all right, I'm learning something about the grace of God, and what a great topic, this apostle of grace. God says, I'm going to give you some new firsthand information on grace. 
by letting you have this thorn in the flesh. And so we need to know how to ask the right questions. And, and God always wants to reveal more of himself than he wants to just, you know, explain exactly what's going on. Uh, and he wants us to draw closer to him. And so uh, verse eight, the beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and will go to perdition. Those are, I think, four different uh, situations that the beast is going to find himself in. The revelation has already introduced the beast as a world leader who was and is not. That means he will be assassinated, receiving a fatal head wound, but he miraculously returns to life. Some of this we learned in, in chapter 13. Uh, and, and so I'm summarizing that. He will ascend out of the bottomless pit. Instead of going to Hades when he dies, like every other non-believer, God incarcerates the beast briefly in the abyss. The abyss is a prison for supernatural creatures. No human being can exist in the abyss with a normal human body. He will therefore be, in some sense, supernatural. It's almost like a comic book origin story, you know? Uh, I, I don't want to give you one right now. I mean, but you know what I'm talking about. Something happens, usually involving nuclear radiation or something like that, gamma radiation, and, and the, the person becomes a supervillain or a superhero for that matter. But the beast is definitely a supervillain. Then it says he will go to perdition. The beast and his assistant, a guy called the false prophet, who again we met in chapter 13, they're going to be the first inhabitants of hell. That's what perdition means here. We'll see when Jesus comes back in chapter 19 that one of the first things he does is he takes the beast and the false prophet and he consigns them immediately to hell. There's no, again, no waiting in Hades. This guy never sees Hades, the temporary waiting place. He just, he's strictly into uh, the abyss and then into uh, hell. And by the way, I think you know this by now, the devil is not ruling a kingdom in hell. He's not sitting on some fiery throne with these weird demons screaming and stuff. No one's in hell right now. That hell was created for the devil and his angels, and they will be thrown in there uh, at, you know, at the end of the millennium. We'll see that in this book. Uh, Dante's Inferno aside, um, bad theology. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. It's easy to see how non-believers will marvel at the beast returned from the dead with supernatural powers. Add to that, Satan is the power behind him, and he has the false prophet to boot. They create some kind of a, an image that is able to uh, demand worship and kill people that don't worship him. And so it's, it's going to be a marvelous time in that sense. Now, we've previously encountered the book of life. Since Jesus is the Savior of all men, 1 Timothy 4, we say that the names of everyone conceived are in the book of life. And so from the time you're, actually from the foundation of the world, everyone that's going to be conceived, their name is in the book of life. Since Jesus is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe, 1 Timothy goes on to say, we say the names of everyone who die in unbelief is removed from the book of life. And so you're born, your name is in the book of life, you go through life. If you die having rejected Christ, never receiving Christ, your name is removed the way it would be removed from any membership role after death. And we'll see that uh, in about chapter 20, 
This book and other books are gonna be opened as non-believers stand before the throne of God and they're, they're looking for their names and their names are not there because they never trusted Christ for salvation. And since they can't go to heaven without Jesus, then they must go to hell. And so that's what's going on with this book. If you're here this morning uh, on the authority of the word of God, I would say your name is written in the book of life, but if you're not a believer, it's gonna be removed if you don't accept the Lord. And there's no hope after death. There's no second chance. It is appointed unto men once to die, and after this comes judgment. And so let the Holy Spirit minister to your heart right now. Then in verse 9, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. One scholar offers this simple explanation. The seven heads and mountains are seven successive empires with the seven kings of verse 10 as heads and personifications of those empires. This view agrees with a common metaphorical use of mountain or hill in the Bible. For example, King David in Psalm 30 verse 7 refers to his kingdom as my mountain. This is sensible because the next phrase says the heads are also seven kings. And so seven kings, seven kingdoms. The seven kings representing the seven kingdoms, which were Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And uh, from our point of view, a future Rome uh, that will also be taken over by the beast. Some people say, well, where's the British Empire? Where's the United States? You know, well, the Bible isn't concerned about other nations other than these that were involved with the nation of Israel. Uh, and so these are the seven that are being talked about in this passage. John wrote late in the first century AD, the first five empires, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece had already fallen. And that's what he mentions here. They were in the past. John was living in the sixth kingdom, which was Rome. And that is what is meant by one kingdom is. The one who has not yet come is the beast ruling over a revived Rome. It was in the future to John. And when he comes, he will continue a short time, which we know to be only the last three and one half years of the great tribulation. I should mention that many commentators insist the seven mountains can only mean Rome, known as the city built on seven hills. And because of that, they say that Babylon here is really a code name for Rome so that John wouldn't get in trouble. John was already in trouble, so I don't know why it would matter. Uh, but seriously, what's interesting about this, if you look it up, many, many cities claim to be built on seven hills, including no less than 30 in the United States. In fact, there are cities whose name is Seven Hills. Uh, South Dakota, or where I, I'm not saying, so I can't remember what states they're in, but there are four or five cities that are named Seven Hills. And then there are tons of them internationally. And so a lot, a lot of cities want to be built on Seven Hills for some reason. Babylon was not used as a code word for Rome until much later in Christian history. The Apostle Peter does say in one of his epistles that he was writing from Babylon, and they say, see, he was probably in Rome but didn't want the officials to know no, he was probably in Babylon. And just because we don't have a record of his, you know, his travel there, his itinerary doesn't mean he wasn't there. And so uh, we take this as Babylon, not some other world city. A lot of people want to say, well, 
you know, New York is Babylon or uh, San Francisco is Babylon. Now, we could say that spiritually. We could say, well, yeah, it's, it's like going to the University of Babylon, you know, and stuff. In New York? No, just anywhere that it's godless. But when we're talking about the Babylon of, of Revelation 18, it's a real city, and it is the city of Babylon, not Rome. And so verse 11, the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth. He's of the seven, and he's going into perdition. Again, I'll quote a reliable scholar. As one of the seven... The beast is a kingdom as an eighth. He is the king of that kingdom who sustains the wound and ascends from the abyss after his wound. And so the author is saying that the, the Antichrist, the beast, is ruling with these seven other individuals. He's assassinated. When he comes back from the dead, he becomes an eighth kingdom because he now rules over them. Uh, they obviously will give him their allegiance and power. He's king over an eighth kingdom because his reign following his ascent from the abyss will be far more dynamic and dominant than before. This is why he is one of the seven, but also an eighth. The angel talking with John wants us to know the beast's destiny, says he is going to perdition. That is eternal conscious punishment in the lake of fire. Verse 12, the 10 horns you saw are 10 kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. The beast will eventually establish 10 kings over 10 regions of the world. That will be the final form of the global government. It is mankind returning to Babylon, you could say. So he rules with seven. He's one of the seven. He's shot in the head. Into the abyss, out of the abyss, he comes back a superhero. Now he is number eight in the sense that he is over these other six guys, Right? And then at some point he says, hey, we're going to rearrange this into 10 regions of the world and I'm going to be God over them. And so that's what's happening here. The 10 horns which you saw are 10 kings who have received no kingdom as of yet, but will. Uh, it's the final form of human government. One hour here isn't literal. It means a short time, which we know to be three and a half years. Wait just a minute. Don't I stress we are to take things literally? Yes, but remember I said that that doesn't mean we are like Drax in Guardians of the Galaxy and can't recognize common metaphors and figures of speech. And so just because the Bible is literal doesn't mean there isn't poetry and hyperbole and metaphor and illustration. And when we read one hour, uh, it's obvious from the context that he means a short time, and that short time will be the last half of the Great Tribulation. It says in verse 13, these are of one mind. They will give their power and authority to the beast. Ten nations under godlessness with slavery and injustice for all. That's going to be the world of the beast. Verse 14, they will make war with the lamb and the lamb will overcome them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. The world's armies will be gathered together by God in the valley of Megiddo in the Middle East to what we like to call the battle of Armageddon. When the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, descends, he wins easily. Humans are the only creatures that are called, chosen, and faithful. Human beings are born dead in trespasses and sins. No one can come to God unless they are called. The good news is that Jesus on the cross said he would draw all men to himself. We take that to mean that there is a power that emanates from the cross that enables men to come to him, draws them to him so that they can make a decision. 
God, before the foundation of the world, chose to save believers through Christ, and he predestined them to heaven. This grace is received through faith as God the Holy Spirit frees a person's will that they might believe. And so the gospel is preached, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it's always accompanied by the power and presence of God the Holy Spirit to open the will, uh, open the heart of an individual and free their will to receive Christ as a gift. Saved people here are described as remaining faithful, uh, and, and that's true, but I like to emphasize, too, that Jesus is faithful and can be counted upon to complete the work of salvation he begins in us. He who began this work is faithful to complete it. Those who are with him at his second coming, you're going to find out that's us, the resurrected and raptured church. Verse 15, then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. The harlot will hold sway over the population of earth for the first half of the great tribulation. It would seem to embrace all faiths and beliefs, not just one single religion. It seems like it's a ecumenical tolerance that all roads lead to God. That is all roads but biblical Christianity. <laughs> no one can take it that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so, you know, a lot of people, uh, when I was first saved and for decades after that, uh, the, people tried to prove that this was the Roman Catholic Church, that that was the system of the last days. Uh, now they've shifted a lot, same people and some new ones, and say, no, it's actually Islam. Islam's going to take over and stuff. Uh, it, it makes the most sense to see all of those systems active at once all over the world, cooperating with each other in one big bless me club, uh, each of them leading people astray, each of them cannibalizing people and leading them to perdition. And so uh, you're free to believe what you want, but I think it's a bigger, broader conspiracy than just any particular religion. Verse 16, and the 10 horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot and make her desolate and naked and eat her flesh and burn her with fire. This is pretty straightforward language, huh? 10 nation confederacy will usurp the harlot. The beast will declare himself God demanding to be worshiped. This disturbing imagery of the harlot being hated, desolated, stripped of clothing, then barbecued and eaten should remind us that the hearts of men need transforming in a relationship with God. Uh, and so they use religion for a time, and then he finally says, hey, who needs religion when I'm God? Uh, it's, it's a terrible time to be alive for sure. Verse 17, for God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. One writer said, a divine overruling controls the fate of the world's political powers so that at the time, Satan is an instrument in serving a providential purpose. God never causes evil. Neither does he violate our free will. Within his self-imposed limits, however, he sees to it by providence that history reaches the end that he has written. My favorite example and therefore overused is the story of Esther in the Old Testament. In a nutshell, it goes like this. There was an evil guy named Haman. He had King Ahasuerus sign a decree that they could kill all the Jews in the Persian kingdom. Little did they know that Esther was a Jew. She had become the queen under dubious circumstances. Her uncle Mordecai came in and said, you're the person that is in a position to help the Jews not be eliminated. But then he went on to say, if you don't do it, God will raise up help a different way. Oh, well, that's pretty radical. Because you and I read that and we think, oh, God had her right where he wanted her. 
What do you mean if she refuses? She could have refused. And God wouldn't have wrung his hands and said, man, that was my last bullet. I don't know what I'm going to do without Esther. He would have had another plan in place. And so God is able to remain sovereign and through providence not violate our free will and yet bring us to the point where the things we're reading about in the Revelation are absolutely going to happen. Verse 18, and the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Verse 18 is our segue from mystery Babylon to municipal Babylon of the future, the subject of chapter 18. Listen to this wisdom from the Apostle Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. It's in chapter 6, and he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, there's that word again, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, no sodomites, no thieves, nor covetous, no drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. The unrighteous are non-believers, people who have not been declared righteous by believing Jesus. Fornicators are called out along with a list of other filthy behaviors. Have you, uh, if you're on Facebook, have you noticed that people like to post polls on uh, Facebook? Just entertaining. If you were a dog, how, uh, what kind of dog would you be? How many states have you visited? You're stuck in the 80s in a movie. What movie would it be? And, you know, those kinds of things. There's an endless list of polls. I thought we could create a poll out of the verses I just read. How many of these things have you done? Some of you, some of us, could probably tag a lot of them. Not that we should be proud of that. But here's what Paul goes on to say. And such were some of you. What a great few words. One, two, three, four, five, six words. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of our God. So he says, yeah, this is what you were like. You were in Babylon. You were a full-blown Babylonian. Whether you were religious or irreligious, believer, agnostic, doesn't matter. You were stuck in Babylon and these things and other things like them described you. But you came to Christ and were washed and sanctified and justified. Take the poll. Now, are you involved in any of these things? Because Jesus saved you from them and he set you free from them. And that means that he can free you again. There's, I don't want to overstate it. I don't know what to call it. I was going to say it's a myth, but... We, we tend to believe that there are certain sins and certain life-dominating situations, uh, you know, and I'm not talking about things that are physical, I'm talking about things that are spiritual. We tend to think that there are some that we just, we just can't overcome them. Even the idea of a life-dominating sin, it, it labels something as something you'll never be rid of, right? Oh, this sin dominates my life, so here I am committing it again and again. After all, it's a life-dominating sin. Now, we shouldn't sin that grace might abound, but grace does abound when we sin. We have to take the approach that whatever list I can make of all this, if you went through the Bible and listed all the sins, it'd be morbid. I, I don't recommend it. And look at it and say, yeah, I'm doing that right now. The Lord would say, well, don't. Stop. Repent. Turn away from it. The spirit that raised me from the dead is in you. Do you remember when you got saved and, and all of that was gone? It could be gone again. And so for those of us who are struggling in any of these areas or any area, 
Such were some of you. That's not you anymore. Let the Lord wash you and cleanse you by the washing of the water of his word. If you're not a believer, the only reason you're here this morning is to hear that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead and that he loved you from eternity past and he loves you now though you're a sinner and he offers himself to you for salvation. And so come out of Babylon, this filthy harlot, and into the purity of a relationship with Jesus Christ.